Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're sitting down with a woman who's been making waves in the state capital community with both her day job and what I guess we can call her side hustle. Yeah, it's a bit of an unusual side hustle, we should say. But Sarah Sadwani is here. She is a politics professor at Pomona College and a member of the Independent Redistricting Commission that just redrew political lines in California for the next decade. There's always a little bit of grousing about redistricting guy, but Sadwani also raised some eyebrows with a recent report she and some colleagues issued on lobbying. That's right. We're going to talk to her about what the report found, uh, what the most effective ways are to get lawmakers to pay attention, come around, be persuaded, and what she thinks about the response to the report. But first, Marisa, let's talk about some news uh, in D.C. Yes. So uh, big uh, disappointment for a lot of Democrats and the president this week. Voting rights fail, not because the legislation failed, but because the motion to change the filibuster rules, blah, blah, blah. Um, So (laughs) we saw the president this week hold what apparently was the longest press conference in uh, presidential history, about two hours, I think. And, you know, he talked a little bit about that. But I think one thing that caught your and my eye about the whole kind of filibuster debate was one of our own senators, Dianne Feinstein, uh, actually making a statement. Showing her cards. (laughs) You know, I think as so as that press conference is going on uh, on Wednesday with the president, the Senate is debating whether or not to change rules around the filibuster to let this voting rights uh, bill go up for a final vote. And we finally heard from Dianne Feinstein that she did support a change to the filibuster rules. Uh, She wanted it changed so senators would actually have to stay on the floor and speak. And then eventually the Senate would take up a vote on the legislation. And that's notable because as recently as this year, we really didn't know where she stood on that. All the attention has been on Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema. But Dianne Feinstein kind of held that, you know, close to the vest. Even, you know, up until, you know, I think it was November, groups like Indivisible Swing Left sent her a letter and said either support a change to the filibuster or resign. So she was, you know, feeling definitely feeling (laughs) this pressure. Didn't seem to pressure her. I mean, it's funny that it took this long. And I do think, you know, it does speak to the moment we're in. I mean, I think that you really she probably didn't want the attention that Cinema and Manchin are getting. Right. That's right. She's probably happy to have them, you know, take the lead on being the face of this uh, issue, pushing back against filibuster reforms. I think big picture, I think, DiFi's position is probably just reflective of where the Democratic Party is going yeah. on this. I mean, as recently as 2020, this was a progressive issue to reform the filibuster. Now, 
I think it's fair to say Cinema and Mansion might be the last two <laughs> Democrats last, last standing, on, yeah. Yeah, in nationally well, ever to be to have that position. And I mean, let's be clear, she didn't say blow it up, right? She said, okay, actually do what it was intended for, which, you know, arguably is not that radical of a position, but but here we are, Guy. Um, well, let's move on to another completely non-controversial topic, vaccine mandates. Um, we have seen a lot of discussion about this in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling recently saying oh, basically overturning the broader uh, mandates that the Joe Biden administration put in uh, place for the private sector. Uh, there's been some calls for Newsom to kind of step up and expand the mandates here, which are really limited at this point to public employees, healthcare workers, um, and eventually school children. Although and not the, prison guards. Yeah, not prison guards, most most workers. Um, but the legislature launched, not surprisingly, headed by Dr. Richard Pan, uh, who's taken this up in the past, a working group um, to look at this issue. I mean, what are you looking for in the coming months, Guy? Because this is not going away. That's right. And that working group must have had one heck of a Zoom meeting yesterday because all of a sudden we're already hearing news that uh, State Senator Scott Wiener tomorrow, he's part of that working group, tomorrow is going to unveil legislation around vaccines. We don't know really what, but I think the couple of avenues that could be is one workplace, right? Kind of stepping into this void, uh, you know, left for, for workers returning to the office. And second, schools. There hasn't been, the legislature hasn't taken up a any kind of move to end the personal belief exemption. Um, we know that the, you know, vaccines for kids for COVID still hasn't gone through the whole approval process. But at some point, the legislature is going to have to decide whether to take the same move they did with measles, right? right? Get rid of this personal belief exemption, really make it harder to opt out of these childhood vaccines. It's not going to be easy. I think for the large part, the legislature has left this to Newsom. And I now think you're going to start to see these debates come up. They get really contentious at the Capitol. You are likely to see more, you know, big protests if something like that were to come up. And frankly, we, you know, you and I hosted this, moderated this debate for state assembly just last week. And we asked the candidates about this idea of if you're elected, would you get rid of a personal belief exemption? Even among four, you know, Democrats in San Francisco. Progressive Democrats. Progressive Democrats. You know, it was, we, I think only one candidate said, absolutely, that's something I would support. Right. I mean, they also seemed a little confused about what the personal belief exemption was because a lot of them brought up medical exemptions, which is a separate issue. Um, I mean, we should back up and explain that, like, Newsom essentially did almost an end run around this in the sense that, not not in a shady sense, but like, instead of going to the legislature last year and saying, you know, let's make this mandatory for students, he said, we're just going to add it to the list, essentially through regulation that already exists. Um, And I think to your point, it's going to be sort of more uh, bulletproof, so to speak, if the legislature does take it up. But let's not forget, I mean, this wasn't in the middle of a pandemic. Last time this ex- issue came up, uh, the entire state Senate was had to adjourn Leave, somebody yeah. through menstrual blood on the floor at a bunch of senators. I mean, it was a huge issue. So this is not, uh, I think, something that you know, will necessarily break down on traditional just party lines. I think there's going to be Democrats who are a little bit more hesitant because this is still a new vaccine and all of those things. Um, And just because this has become such a... God. Right. I mean, (laughs) but like you bring that up logistically, this could be an issue you bring up. It distracts all other business that's happening in Mm -hmm. the Capitol. So I think that's something leadership has to keep in mind. And, you know, uh, you you mentioned Newsom's actions on this. I think it is fair to say the pandemic has been so fast moving that oftentimes executives get that leeway because, look, Omicron in many parts of California is already peaking right. and, and we're on, on the decline. downside here in San Francisco. Yeah. And the legislature is yet to even now they're starting a working group on it. So, right. It's 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 a thing where it's such a fast moving, uh, you know, 
pandemic and the and the variants that oftentimes the legislature finds itself kind of a step behind. For sure. All right. Before we go into the break, we should mention um, Jerry McNerney, long term, uh, long serving congressman um, from east of the Bay Area, has decided he will not run again, which opens up his new district for Josh Harder, a sitting congressman out near Modesto. Um, we are seeing a lot of these sort of, you know, retirements announced, new um New, you know, new people jumping into different seats. Uh, any thoughts on that before we head into to talk to the person who helped draw those lines? Right. Well, how about you and I just take a quick victory lap? I think it was like two months ago on this very show. We talked about, you know, at that point, initial maps were coming out and we saw some political analysis saying, for example, Josh Harder's done. Dead his, on arrival. He's yeah. done. His his where he lives is is no longer in a in a left leaning district. He's done. And I think it just was a little early because, look, there's a musical chairs element of right. this. McNerney retires. Harder now moves to a seat where he doesn't live, but he doesn't have to. There's no residency requirement. And he knows the district he better than He knows a his, lot of parts like Tracy. What his district became. Yeah, yeah that are still uh, in the district. And now, look, he's not done. He's running in a seat that Joe Biden won by 20 points. So, you know, I think there's, uh, there's an element of that that needed to be sorted out. And I think in many cases is still happening as a lot of Democrats stare down the possibility of being in the minority next year. And for a lot of Democrats who've been in Congress for a while thinking, do I really want to fly across the country every week to be in the minority? But I think you get to something I, I repeat over and over again, folks who listen to the show, which is like, it is hard to make political predictions right now because stuff changes quickly. That was just a month or two ago, right? All right, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by Pomona College politics professor Sarah Sadwani. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with guest host Guy Marzarati. And today on The Breakdown, we're thrilled to welcome Pomona College politics professor Sarah Sadwani. She is also one of the 14 members, that's right, right, 14, of the state's independent redistricting commission. Sarah, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're thrilled to get to talk to you about two um yeah, as we said at the top, sort of issues you've been involved in that have really peeved some people off in the state, 
<laughs> so let's start with lobbying. Um, you and some colleagues just did this social lobbying study um, to look at. Well, you tell us what we all know sort of vaguely what lobbying is um, an interest group trying to get an elected official to support their cause or position. What are we talking about when we talk about social lobbying? Yeah, that's right. So we generally all know that lobbying occurs. It's a, it's a part of the political process. But what we wanted to, to study was, was a piece that political scientists haven't really been able to quantify in a meaningful way and really think about <clears throat> systematically. And that's social lobbying, right? The lobbying that might happen outside of the Capitol, outside of a legislator's office. Maybe it's in a bar. Maybe it's in a restaurant. Maybe it's in a houseboat. Who knows? Um, you know, a yacht. Who knows? A yacht, right? Exactly. It could be on a phenomenal trip to Hawaii. I don't know. Um, there's all sorts of times when, when lobbyists are able to connect with legislators outside of the office. And we really wanted to find out, is that more impactful? We believe that it probably is, <clears throat> but it's kind of evaded political science ability to really study. And so so we uh, conducted a, a very novel kind of uh, um, experiment in which we worked with a lobbying firm on some of their actual work that they were doing, uh, and we we randomized the list of state legislators in the in the in the California uh, legislature in order to create treatment groups and control groups. And so we we um, had the same request of every legislator uh, to support a policy publicly, um, and but the key difference was whether or not that request came in their office, in a bar, a restaurant, um, or some other, you know, or no request at all. Um, and so, of course, what we found, which was not surprising and supported our hypotheses, was that lobbying in a social environment does lead legislators or their, or their office um, staff and office representatives uh, to do more of what is being asked of them, right? Um, and so it really shows that the power of, of being able to socialize and to schmooze um, really has an impact. We and might so, be able to tell you that as yeah. a journalist, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I know no study needed. <laughs> yeah, serious. And especially in a place like Sacramento, I mean, I'm curious, you really documented, you know, these meetings that took place in social settings. But in a place like the Capitol, there's just so many kind of random interactions that happen. It could be at a going away party for a legislator or a lobbyist where there's interactions between elected officials and lobbyists. I mean, did that come into play in it all? And, and kind of how did you account for that? Not in this study, but I mean, the underlying piece is, is absolutely there. It's about the relationships that are being built. It's about the, the, the um, ability of lobbyists and, and legislators to feel cordial and to develop, develop a, a sense of trust amongst one another. This is basic human interaction and behavior. The real key, key piece here is one, from the perspective of an interest group, these are strategies that people ought to know. So if you are repping, for, repping a, a, a specific interest, you want to see a certain piece of legislation move forward or not, you want to see the status quo maintained, um, get a legislator outside of the office, whether it's in the hallway or, or you know, like you said, at a fundraising event or, or some other place. But being able to connect, uh, connect with a legislator in a more personal setting um, definitely has that impact. And that has some real implications for democracy, right? If there are interests that are out there and they're unable to access uh, these well-heeled lobbyists, then that's that might be a real problem. There are certain certain voters as well as interests more more generally that just might not be able to have their voice adequately heard. 
I guess, but I mean, when I look at who lobbies in Sacramento, it's mm. not like it's just business or just labor. Like, it's not like one party or even interest group kind of has cornered the market on the ability to get, you know, to hire these folks. So, I mean, what what do you think is like, what should we as the public take from this type of study? I mean, because, you know, to Guy's point, I think for some of us, we were like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and then there's a lot of I'm not this isn't to like disparage your study because I feel like there's a lot of scientific studies that like that's the reaction to them, which is like I could have told you that, <laughs> you know, but what what is your hope that the takeaway is? Totally. We, we weren't surprised by the, by the outcomes. We had anticipated them for sure. Um, for us, it was, it was a really exciting opportunity to finally quantify this fact um, and also to think about other states as well. So in the study, we also conduct a survey uh, of lobbyists in 10 other states. And across the board, we find that, that lobbyists are, are regularly trying to meet with legislators in more social environments. So while in California, we have a very professionalized legislature, uh, where many interests, including low-income communities and et cetera, right, issues around people experiencing homelessness, they may actually have some access to lobbyists here in California that may not be the case uh, in other states. And so I, I think that this has broader implications nationwide about the kinds of, of issues that, that get airtime um, with legislators. I also think, you know, for folks like us, reporters, you mentioned that the human nature of this, right? Just trusting people that you have established relationships mm-hmm. with. If we sometimes, in your opinion, maybe overrate the kind of financial incentives that elected officials can have, the focus so much on the campaign finance and not enough maybe on this social aspect of just being liked by people who are kind of in your orbit, in your social circle. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, when we in in terms of transparency laws, we can see things like uh, when um, when special interests are donating to to candidates. Um, You know, if you go back to looking at, for example, Build Back Better and looking at Joe Manchin and the kinds of of, financial contributions he's he's getting, it can help you really understand why he took the position he did on that legislation. But less so, we don't really know what's happening on the houseboat or in other social areas. We don't know what kinds of relationships or conversations are happening. So much of this is happening outside of the public's, uh, public view. Uh, and that could be a problem, right? I mean, I think I think that's a question for voters and for Californians and, and for Americans more generally, if, if this is a problem that we see. But you guys also sort of found that this type of lobbying isn't going to change somebody's. It's not going to make Manchin suddenly support the filibuster just because he likes the lobbyist who's saying that. Right. I mean, the idea I mean, is some of this almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that like because this is what we often see with campaign contributions as well. Right. You know, somebody gets money from the oil industry or from labor because they came from that background. So how do we kind of disentangle that? I think each case and each legislator is going to be somewhat different when it comes to any particular piece of legislation, right? I mean, um, this is a general uh, um, a study taking a look at uh, our ability to move legislators based on the kinds of interactions that they have. And so uh, overwhelmingly, we found that there was a systematically, um, statistically significant difference when legislators received requests in those social mm-hmm. environments. So that's really the key piece that, that of course, in any given situation, in any given um, policy um, debate, there will be some differences from one legislator to another. But overwhelmingly, 
overwhelmingly, right? When we see legislators being asked to do something in a social environment, they're more likely to do it. You're not going to like get someone to overturn Prop 13 just because right. you're out of drunk. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, what have you made of the response uh, to this study? I think there's been, you know, some critiques about either the sample size of lobbyists, some on the, you know, kind of what Marisa mentioned before, like, oh, of course, social interactions can help sway people. Um, but, you know, what have you made to some of the responses? You know, I, I think we've we've definitely hit a nerve. I think um, certainly, you know, when we were promoting the piece um, on Twitter, we had a lot of responsiveness um, to to the piece. This is an academic article, right? So at the end of the day, it's important that within the academy that we are studying and continuing to push boundaries. And I think that that's what this piece really does, because um, as I mentioned before, it's been really difficult to, for political scientists to to quantify and think about this social element. We we track um, support for for legislation. We we track sponsorship of bills. We track roll call votes, um, campaign finance, various um, other kinds of, of measures that we can identify for legislators. But what we haven't been able to capture are these kinds of social relationships. So I think in that sense, this is a really novel approach um, to everyday practices, right, that we all recognize are happening, but an, an opportunity to really see that they do have an impact. Yeah. Um, you know, to the Twitter Twitterverse out there, you know, I, I think, of course, since this this study was conducted here in California, I think there was a bit of a reaction that that uh, we were studying um, lawmakers here in the state. Um, but I would anticipate that that we would have the same um, same response and same impact um, had we conducted this in any other state. California, however, it makes for a great place because we do have a very professionalized legislature. Um, we have a, a large number of, of legislators um, and we were able to conduct it here. It's so interesting that the lobbying firm played ball too. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati and we are talking with Pomona College politics professor Sarah Sadwani. And you, as we mentioned at the top, are also also one of those 14 suckers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> members of the redistricting commission. But seriously, I mean, like as somebody who has covered government since I was in college, I've always thought, I hope I never get asked to sit on a commission. <laughs> and this, no, these people apply. Right. You all applied. And this is like the commission to end all commissions in some way. So just talk to us why you personally decided that you wanted to uh, take on this this extracurricular activity when you do have a day job. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have a day job. I also have three kids, so oh, wow. for sure yeah. it wasn't like I, I just had a lot of time on my hands or anything. Um, you know, I, I felt like it was important, right? Um, I was very familiar with the redistricting process in general. I, I had a background even before I went into academia working in, in uh, community-based organizations that had been involved in redistricting back in 2010. So I was generally familiar with the process. Um, you know, there had also been, I, I, there had also been an article that came out in the LA Times back in, it must have been the summer of 2019, um, talking about the applications and the lacked, it was the pool of candidates lacked women, people of color. And I thought, well, why not? I will put my, my uh, hat in the ring. Um, there were 20,000 initial applications. So I really didn't anticipate <laughs> actually getting onto the commission and was very surprised um, when my lottery ball was called. Um, but, you know, that was kind of kind of some of that trajectory and, and um, decision to, to go to, to, to at least to apply. At least yeah. To apply. So, yeah. you know, as someone who spent 
an insane amount of hours watching you guys at work over the course of months. Like, give us, can you give me and Marisa just a little bit of behind the scenes? Like, you obviously came into this with a lot more redistricting knowledge, experience than a lot of the other commissioners. Like, how did that all play out? What was the dynamic behind the scenes as, as you all were, you know, working on these maps? Did people turn to you like, Sarah, you must know the answer? <laughs> You know, at times, at times, I think that would happen. But but the whole point of the commission is that it's it's a citizens commission and you don't need any um, formal training on elections or redistricting in order to, to serve. And, and I think we really tried to maintain that and learn together through this process. Um, though I'm a political scientist, though I study elections, I had never redistricted uh, anywhere before. So I was new to this process as well. Um, and, you know, a big part, I think, of the success of the commission was for all 14 of us to work together as a team. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of. You know, we have Democrats, Republicans, independents, and we were able to come through this process and vote unanimously on the maps. Um, for me, that was that was a real moment of pride. You know, behind the scenes, for sure, I was very active on our Voting Rights Act subcommittee um, and our legal affairs and our governmental affairs, tracking the census data. Uh, but there were so many elements to the commission, right? Uh, all of the extensive public outreach that was done, our work on ensuring language access so that, that folks who don't speak English very well could also participate in the process. So um, while I was, yes, working on some more of the technical components, um, other commissioners were super involved in, in all of the other pieces that are so essential um, to the commission's work. So it was truly a, a shared, shared uh, responsibility. So we saw big jumps for California's share of Latino and Asian residents um, in the census. And then, you know, we we've seen a lot of ink spilled over the sort of increase of Latino power in districts. Um, I think, you know, Asian American and black communities ended up relatively happy with where things went. But how did you all think about this idea of what, you know, people call communities of interest, population changes, like how to reflect that and still be balanced? Uh, you well, the, the California Constitution is very clear in the criteria that we have to follow. Um, and so communities of interest is one of those criteria, but it's lower ranked from some of the others, like equal population of the districts, as well as compliance with the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so we, we wanted to make sure that we were following the letter of the law to the greatest extent possible. Uh, and we conducted an extensive Voting Rights Act analysis, and we were very you know, had a, had a, had a clear eye um, to what it took to comply with what's left of the Voting mm -hmm. Rights Act. I know at the top of the hour, you were talking about, um, about new legislation, which is extraordinarily exciting. Um, but here, you know, here in California still, or across the nation, really, um, the Voting Rights Act is still the, the, the law of the land. Section two of the Voting Rights Act does provide provisions for communities that have been historically excluded from the vote and marginalized or who have faced discrimination in accessing the ballot. Um, here in California, that predominantly um, means the Latino community, also African-Americans and Asian-Americans, of course, but the, the size of those communities are not necessarily always um, large enough or compact enough to create districts, um, you know, in compliance with the Voting Rights Act here in California. That's different, of course, in other states. As someone who is studying lobbying um, in your in your job as a professor, I'm wondering what you made of the kind of public lobbying we saw of the redistricting commission. I mean, there were times where you had 
San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo calling into the meeting. Very public. (laughs) Demanding changes. I mean, how did you all wait? You had so many different competing interests calling in and making compelling cases. Um, how did you all weigh those? And especially when it was coming from, you know, people who were making news by calling into the commission? Yeah, I, I mean, first, on the one hand, the lobbying of the commission is is all done in public, right? I mean, as commissioners, we are very much restricted in our ability to talk to people outside of a commission meeting. So the good news is all of that lobbying happened in a public forum and you can follow along and, and everyone knows, you know, where we're being influenced from, if you will. Um, you know, in terms of, of weighing that, there's so many, there were so many different components. And I think what we saw through what you probably saw throughout this process was that we would we would get a, a, a strong hit from, you know, the mayor of San Jose wanting San Jose to be kept whole as to the greatest extent possible in a congressional district. And then we went and played around with it. We tried to see what, what it would take to do that, right? What impact would it have on the rest of the maps, on all of the other districts that we've built? You know, across the board, especially for the congressional districts, we're building 52 districts. So it's, you know, anytime you make a shift in one area, it means that you're going to have to have shifts in other areas. That comes back to those criteria of equal population, of communities of interest, of voting rights act. So we were constantly weighing all of these pieces as we were as we were developing them, as we were looking at different ideas, particularly in San Jose. We tried putting San Jose together and the impact was, you know, some very odd shaped districts. And then we had a lot of response to that, too. So, um, you know, ultimately, you know, the city was was divided in several places, but many large cities are divided um, into into additional uh, representation. And we generally thought that that could be a positive thing for a large city to have additional representation um, for the city and having more uh, legislators who are out there advocating on their behalf. Well, maybe if he had been able to tell you guys over a beer, it would have been (laughs) different. Um, All right. We don't have much time left, but I just got to ask, do you think you 14 will keep in touch? And Tamina, the mapper, all get re- is there yeah. reunion plans? <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, our mappers were amazing. Our our s- staff that did the the call-ins every night, Katie, that you know was incredible. Yes, you know, actually, we still have a meeting tomorrow. So uh, the commission continues to meet. Um, we have some reports that we're going to be writing, a reflection on the process in general, what what kinds of changes we feel like might be helpful for the 2030 commission to make sure that they're able to be up and running and. and um, do a great job 10 years from now. All right, Sarah Sadwani, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy next to me is our producer. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Scott Schaefer will be back next week. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at Lagos. but don't go after me like you did, Sarah, please. No. (laughs) Have a good one, everyone. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. 
And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.